0: You're listening to Alternative Thinking, Both Sides of the Coin, a production of the Canadian Association of Alternative Strategies and Assets, where we explore today's markets and alternative investments from two distinct perspectives. Today we're speaking with two data professionals, one with decades of experience with impact and socially responsible investing and the metrics around this, and the other from the Canadian mutual fund industry and chair of the Canadian Investment Fund Standards Committee. determines the guidelines and placement of fund types in Canadian databases. Both have a passion for numbers and social issues that will shine in this interview, I'm sure. James Buran is the President and Co-Founder
1: of CASA. All opinions expressed during the show by James and our show guests remain their own and should be used for informational and educational purposes only. Find out more about CASA at casa.ca.
0: Welcome. Today's Wednesday, June third. This is James Brown with Casa, and this is Alternative Thinking. Today we have Bonnie Linda Bartok with the S Factor Company and Reid Baker with Fun Data. We'll start with self-introductions. Uh, start with you, Bonnie.
1: Hi, James. Thanks for having us on uh, today. Um, by background, I am um, we. The S Factor Company is a data and analytics company that is focused on social impact issues and data. We are aggregators of data, but we're also originators of data. Um, And we have a lot of original uh, analytics around that data as well, servicing the financial Mm -hmm. services market. Um, By way of background, I am a socioeconomic quant. I've been in the space of measuring um, and managing social impact issues for over two decades around the world, across some 57 countries now. I've worked you know, for the NGOs, I've worked for governments, I worked more than a decade in the mining and oil and gas sector, and I've advised uh, you know, heads of state and also major financial institutions on debt facility and m transactions around human rights issues and social impact issues related to uh, risk and probability around, around their financings. And we established the company about ten years ago as an advisory practice, but we really transitioned a hundred percent into the data and analytics with the same subject expertise about three years ago.
0: Wow, that's really interesting. So, what what is socioeconomic data like? We really know the economic side. Uh, like, how do you discern the socioeconomic um, data side?
1: Yeah, it it um, it's a good question. It really looks at what the economic effects are on other facets of social impact. So uh, an example might be, you know, we talk a lot about job creation and economic stimulus mm. from job creation that will have ultimately some some trickle effect into other areas like spending on healthcare and stimulus of, of the micro economies um, that are a spinoff from, from the original job creation. So service companies, you know, related to, so if we're talking about like an infrastructure project or a mining project or something like that, and we're talking about the number of jobs it creates, well, there's multiple other micro businesses that, that can stem from mm-hmm. uh, the economic stimulus of, of that. When we add additional layers of, of social impact considerations, we look at what the systemic issues are and how it relates to livelihoods over time as a result of that same job creation. So perhaps there's a short-term economic stimulus uh, in an industry that is otherwise uh, heavily um, contaminating land or water or air pollution that would have systemic Mm -hmm. issues on the healthcare burden of the population over time. So in most cases, we don't currently consider those evaluations um, when we value the return on investment from... From investing in a project mm-hmm. or, or a company like that for the short-term economic stimulus of the jobs
0: and typically who's interested in this i'm, I'm coming to mind is like family offices because it's kind of their money and their stewards of it and pension plans or is it like who who are the kind of the, the standard bearers of uh of using this data the esg data
1: yeah i think historically it was really more government so where companies um would develop major infrastructure projects or, or, uh, you know, major manufacturing plants or facilities, they would pay taxes and royalties to the government and the government would ultimately be responsible for the social content of, of, um, uh, you know, reinvesting those taxes and royalties in the community to sustain, you know, healthcare and education and, and uh, other effects. But as we know now um, from dozens and even hundreds of business cases over the last decade and certainly throughout history and time, um, companies and in industry are now being affected more more than ever as information becomes available about the effects mm. of, of, of them, starts to inhibit or become a risk or a probability of risk to the company itself in terms of its ability to operate. Mm-hmm with some sort of a disruption so from social issues so i I keep coming back to mining examples because it's an easy target but there there's there's many um examples and industries to choose from but in the case i can give you a couple so in in the case of mining Mm -hmm. they have you know some anti-mining sentiment where they are complaining about you know contamination of water and land and so they'll protest against the mine, and then the mine is ultimately affected with lost time costs as a result of, of the interruption. And so now it's affecting the companies yep. and the industries directly. So historically, it would have been a government issue, but now it's become you know an issue of for public companies and private companies as well. All industries um, are being affected in some way. I mean, if we think about the pandemic mm-hmm. era that we're in now... We're thinking about, you know, the effects of price gouging, or the effects of selling fear, or fake news, or the effects of not following protocol, and the systemic healthcare burden that we will need to um, facilitate long-term for companies that are not following protocol and those rules. So it really is now affecting everyone, and so investors ultimately now need to take these into consideration in terms of risk and risk mitigation and the probabilities of exposure. Based on a myriad of social issues that could ultimately affect ROI on their investments.
0: Yeah, oh, it's interesting. It seems like the old paradigm was using the data for for regulatory purposes. But if uh, if people are, are mobilizing and and protesting and such, and uh, you know, yeah, you affect the bottom line of companies. That'll make at least as much of an impact. And then they have to they have to answer to wider stakeholders, I guess, as well with with shareholders and and other people that that are. Uh, that are actively engaging with them, especially now with the internet, versus just a once a year shareholder meeting where they can turn off the mic, sort of thing. That's interesting.
1: Yeah, I mean, if you if you look at the broader, like even you know more macro level considerations in the divestment of fossil fuels, that is as a result of the connection between, um, you know, the mm-hmm. direct connection of healthcare cost and burden and systemic issues um, across populations as a result of an industry. So you know, it used to be regulatory, uh, but really now it's it's being factored into value. On ROI. Yeah, mm-hmm.
0: that's cool. Thanks, Bonnie Lynn and uh, Reid. What uh, what do you do? And uh, what is Fundata up to?
2: Fundata is a data provider um, at the core. We collect data on almost a hundred percent of Canadian investment funds. Um, wow. It started as. You know really just mutual funds but um yeah in the last i don't know 10 years we've we've essentially got into obviously the hedge fund space the alt space um etf seg funds pool funds so we do mm-hmm. cover a huge amount of the canadian investment fund landscape and we generally we get the data directly from fund companies um process it run performance calculations um, quality checks data audits all that kind of stuff um, Risk mm-hmm. assessments, and then send it out to generally back office systems, um, and really anybody that that needs or wants a data feed.
0: That's cool. So you're like a transmission mechanism from the fund companies, and their, I guess their NAVs and their other performance metrics. Or so I guess you guys might calculate some of those internally. It's probably not that hard for a data company, and then to send it to the uh, the broker dealers, the advisors, the um, the folks who need to get that data to, I guess, put it. in into statements and also to i guess using their analytical purposes for looking at funds
2: yeah yeah exactly a lot of it um, we do send just raw data for the end user mm-hmm. to kind of run their own analysis and then we also do you know a lot of the analysis in-house um kind of customized based on on whatever the, the user needs or wants so cool
0: yeah in the mutual fund industry i said a few times like it's just growing from hundred million or so back in the nineties to one and a half, 1.4 trillion or whatever it is. So it's, yeah, you guys have definitely been riding the wave there. Um, yeah. and then with the liquid alts, like, I said like we've, we've worked on it for like for six years before it finally came out. And, and now actually our latest, latest update, we show, uh, 10, about 10 billion, like 9.996, or whatever it is in liquid alts, uh, quadrupled from just a year ago. And, uh, what do you guys think, what, what are you guys seeing in um, in the space? Is there, uh, in the liquid oil space, is there rapid adoption? Or how, what kind of metrics would you look at for that, um, for how how much it might be coming into the, the client portfolios?
2: Yeah, I'd say obviously assets are something important to look at. I think the, the data on assets isn't great right now. Generally we get asset data in holdings files. Um, mm. Typically, anyway, for for mutual funds or ETFs, Um, but that that kind of reporting isn't great yet for the liquid alts. Um, Oh, yeah.
0: Especially if they're shorting in leverage, yeah. (laughs) Yeah.
2: So we do, I mean, we do a lot of just counting the number of funds, the number of providers. Um, I think as of, well, the last check I did, we were at 129 liquid alts out there. Wow. Um, And that number, that number has grown significantly when all the um, passive and inverse etfs switched over to liquid alts um so those are all included there now but even so that number it is significant and it's growing fast um we're seeing new liquid alts every month coming into the database um and yeah i don't see that really slowing down in the in the coming year
0: yeah and then you do the the uh traditional offering memorandum or om funds for the accredited investors uh as well or or is that where you just you stick with the mutual fund side for that data
2: no we do we do have a lot of the om products too it's um the the motive to be in our database is a little bit different for the om products where they don't mm. necessarily need to get in front of all the retail investor eyeballs um right yeah like the mutual funds but they there still is a benefit in having us process the data um you know, running the performance and um, any kind of customized reporting that they want to see—that's you know, kind of where they get the benefit from us.
0: And then you are you the chair of Cifsi? Is that how it works? Yes, the Canadian Investment Standards uh, Investment Fund Standards Committee. So yeah, uh, which I'm also on too. So you probably know that. But um, and then developing the alternative mutual funds of the liquid alts categories over the last while that's been yeah. actually the last year or so i guess it's been and um but now the new the newest thing is kind of where where you guys intersect with bonnie lynn is is responsible investing and uh, you know we've had a few uh in person i guess in zoom well zoom calls on it what uh, well how did that come about like is, is is responsible investing a huge part of the canadian uh mutual fund or investment landscape that it that it requires this or is it is it more like get in front of this before it starts to really touch to, uh, um, before before it gets to that stage?
2: I think it's, I mean, we are getting to that stage. I do feel like it's really, it's, it's exploded in the last year, um, two mm-hmm. years maybe, uh, where really everybody is at the very least asking about it. Um, and again, it's the kind of thing where people just want more data, more data is better. Any information they can get (laughs) is better. Um, And from a committee perspective, it's like I was I've been approached by several different interested parties and um, sort of suggesting that the SIFC is an appropriate committee to start kind of identifying these responsible Hmm. investment funds with, you know, very transparent um somewhat quantitative somewhat qualitative process because that's that's really what we do with the mutual fund categories um Mm -hmm. and the fact that we do have all the data providers on board means that really our reach is to almost every advisor in canada so to have a centralized body like that that can you know handle all the data handle the qualitative elements um it really does make a lot of sense for the cfc to do it and i all the, all the members are pretty excited about doing it. Um, they're generally mm-hmm. doing it with their, their own companies anyway. Um, so to bring it to the committee level where we can actually share something and have something consistent in Canada that people can rely on, I think is, it's gonna be very valuable.
0: Yeah. Bonnie Lynn, if you were looking at responsible investing and the different types of funds that were there, um, how how do you think someone from strictly from the ESG side would look at that uh, and and kind of categorize funds? Because there's it seems to be a bit of a mismatch. There's, there's the, if one that focuses on the environmental and also on governance. There's some I think on, on the S on the social side, probably not as much yet. Um, and then there's the impact investing. How how, do you, how would somebody from that area specifically look at the uh, the types of offerings of, uh, that they have in the mutual fund realm?
1: Yeah, I mean across RI. Globally, you, you probably have seven or eight different strategies, regardless of, you know, the type of fund, it's how they're going to integrate the information. Um, Mm -hmm. So they may be, you know, operating in a thematic investing uh, environment, or it could be norms based screening, where they just want to ensure that the criteria that they're ingesting uh, meets the criteria of international standards um, negative, uh, negative or exclusionary screening is probably the largest dimension of, of the different types of strategies of mm-hmm. creating the information. I, you know, um,
0: yeah, that's one I think of actually, if I think of ESG, I always think of the, the no landmine sort of, sort of funds.
1: Yeah. I mean, it's, it's, it's invested, you know, out of, out of 46.6 trillion in assets under management globally, 20 billion of that is specific to negative. Or exclusionary screening, um, so wow. elimination of things that that um, you know traditional sin stock or or not meeting compliance on various uh, benchmarks. Um, you know there there is an opportunity certainly for positive or best in class strategies as well, where we're starting to uh, learn more about uh, value creation through adoption of these strategies. So where they're they're seeking alpha in in the incorporation of certain additional criteria that is not traditional. Um, You know, we, we, across the environmental landscape, there's a, there's a number that was thrown out that, you know, that generally ESG specific funds could return six or 7% greater than market. And that was kind of an average study that was done. But when we, when we.
0: That is a huge amount of money.
1: Well, wait till I tell you about the social. (laughs) So, you know, uh, a lot of those funds, even though they say ESG or they say impact, uh, we're really talking about carbon in the environment. And this seems to be a repetitive uh, theme that's going on. And you will see from the pandemic issue, specifically pushing ESG to the forefront of considerations and discussion, that the social elements are completely underrepresented or misunderstood and not Mm -hmm. standardized, et cetera, et cetera. And so, you know. Yeah. The emphasis of what we are adding to this landscape is an extremely deep dive on the social issues, but also the correlation to ROI as a result of that addition. And the results are much greater uh, than what we can find in current uh, ESG performance right now. I mean, there's a couple of other strategies like um, impact investing, which is different. They are they're using right, a lot of yeah. data, but they're incorporating it or weighting it or emphasizing, you know, specific issues, um, uh, targeting certain mission-based outcomes. Um, we also have corporate engagement. So the governance, article um, or the G and ESG has seen a lot of um, attention in the last couple of years because it, it is measurable and manageable and quantifiable. Um, and the S yes is coming, and there's there's you know, not a day that goes by in the news where there isn't another article or another piece of information that is really driving the social factors, especially with COVID um, and the systemic issues now across, you know, job loss and, and education um, and certainly healthcare systems and what that will mean to our economies in the future. Um, so corporate engagement is is a huge play. I mean, they they had 10 billion of that 46.6 trillion uh, at the, in the last fiscal year uh, attributed to corporate engagement and shareholder activism around ESG issues. So there's a lot being directed there and then ESG integration specifically. So specific ESG funds, um, which was around 17.5 billion at the end of last year. So uh, there's tons of opportunity I see in positive best in class screening with the addition of S based on some of the correlations mm-hmm. we've made in on ROI, which is, which is really substantial and greater than what we're seeing. Um, So, you know, like it's uh, in terms of where I think the opportunities are, if that's, that's what you're asking. I mean, we, we have become, you know, a data provider and as we're bringing that out to market, the investment community is coming back to us and asking us to do the quantitative analytics on top of it, to show them how to use it, Mm. Right? How do we glean value from what it is that you're giving me? How do I incorporate this in a different way than I'm using ESG right now? So if I'm negative screening for ESG and now you've just given me a whole bunch of social data, how do I turn this into value for <laughs> <laughs> my evaluation? So, yeah, so we we um, created an index of our own that um, takes, you know, the most popular uh, ESG um constituents across the world, you know, held within 108 funds, we've applied, you know, the same methodology to entire public universe of companies, and come up with, you know, best in class MSPI, um, which is the social performance index that, uh, that S Factor has created. And that index outperforms other ESG thematic funds and the market. But it is, it, well, it's stuff. a it's it is good stuff. And so I, you know, like I went to my investors and said, I want my own fund. And they and they came back and said you show me that over 5 years and we'll have a discussion. <laughs> so, so you know, so we've really stumbled on to ROI and SROI, which is social mm-hmm. return on investment as
0: well. Right? That's awesome. I didn't realize there were so many. Yeah, because the negative one is pretty obvious. The the positive the best in class. That that, that makes sense. Yeah, because if you want to pick like you if you're going to buy oil, you buy the one that's not Killing as many seals or whatever it is like. And then you have uh, thematic makes sense. Okay, it's a wind farm fund. Yeah, uh, corporate engagement. We've seen that. I guess specifically with the uh, kind of activist funds that would go out and uh, and uh, you know pitch at the windmill sort of thing and actually make it, make a difference in, in many of many of those cases than is the ESG specific. And then, but what's this one like the norms based funds? Like that's uh, I didn't, I'm not quite sure how that how that is used yeah. in the uh, in the investment philosophy and how it's implemented.
1: Yeah, a norms-based screen really means a standardized set of criteria. So you look to international best practice standard frameworks. So we can use, you know, Mm. the United Nations supported principles for responsible investment, which most investors would be familiar with because it's an investment tool.
0: Yeah, the OPRI. The
1: the OPRI. Um, And there's, you know, that's made up. They have partners within uh, the Global Compact, which really delves deeper into the human rights uh, social area, and then they also have the environmental um, uh, UNEP environmental program that is partnered with uh, financial as well. Um, but those those are two or three frameworks of the, you know hundreds that are available. We cover forty five frameworks like that. Holy! Um, and we marry all of the criteria that is required for metrics under the the um, the underlying indicators. And then we standardize the definition. So, what is required to perform? What are you measuring against this criteria? And can we standardize what that criteria mm-hmm. is across those forty-five frameworks? We've done that for over twelve hundred metrics. So, uh, so when you are when wow. you are evaluating a company against some of this criteria, we know that it concedes to any one of those frameworks. And so, it you know it takes the onerous of trying to evaluate which framework to align with and and which standards to meet and which, you know, it kind of reduces the level of effort for um, uh, what criteria they should be looking at, how they should be measuring it, what would the source content look like, is it material, can we glean value from this? We've taken all of that level of effort out of the analysis and, and we're providing that in a structured data set that will be meaningful to the application. but. Um, You know, Mm -hmm. I, uh, to, to answer a bit of your earlier question on the financial products in, in terms of where I see this going, I said this years ago, but I'm really starting to see it take, take flight now, um, in the fixed income space instruments, social bonds are the future.
0: Ah, yeah. The old green bonds and stuff. Yeah.
1: Right. So I don't know if you knew this, but total issuance this year in 2020 as a result of of um COVID, social bonds investment has surpassed sixty-five billion. Um as of early that Seems year.
0: like a biggish number.
1: And they are expecting it to go to over one hundred billion by the end of the year. So this is where companies and investors and governments can come together to address some very severe results that will need managing over time. So how do we how do we ma- now manage the healthcare issue and how do we prepare for the next pandemic, right? So where is that investment going to come from? It's going to come from, you know, public-private partnership, essentially. And the way to do that is is really, you know, uh, you know, through, through, um, through social bonds, I think. And, uh, you know, there, there's some really big players leading the way there. European Investment Bank, the International Financial Corp, African Development Bank, and you know, in terms of the first named company, Pfizer is jumping on board with some of the governments here. We had uh, actually a social bond launch, the first one in Canada in Toronto, little over a week ago. It was announced, so there is some pilot testing going on here as well.
2: Yeah, I just wanted to jump in quickly, if we can, um, you know, since we're talking about social issues and everything, if, just wanted to acknowledge mm-hmm. quickly the the protests in the U.S. and really all over racism and racial injustice um this obviously might not be the best platform for this but to me this is the most important Mm. social issue in the world right now and i just think the more we talk about it the more we raise awareness and and maybe that eventually leads to some real change um i definitely don't have the answers i don't pretend to be an expert on this by any means i'm a white male that grew up in a privileged suburb in alberta but um Mm -hmm. i do think it's on all of us to make changes whether it's how we go about our day-to-day or how we listen or how we vote or how we can influence systemic changes like holding police departments and officers accountable um disbanding police unions reducing the number of officers that carry guns um, some huge significant changes like that obviously not easy um but we have to start somewhere. Um, and I guess this kind of leads me into a question for Bonnie, if I can, just mm-hmm. um, if you have anything that measures race relations, or if that's on your radar for the future or.
1: Yeah, it it, it is built into everything that we do. So diversity and, and the socio-demographics of, of the environment in which companies operate at every location of operation throughout their supply chain is something that we're looking at. I mean, from, a, from an academic perspective, it's really what they call the intersectional environmentalism. So it's where environment crosses over into um, the socio uh, impacts as well. And you can't fight climate justice um, just by protecting nature and the environment. It also means fighting racial justice and social justice. So, if you think about, um, you know, throughout history in every supply chain in the world, we're looking at, you know, who is profiting from the exploitation of people of color throughout that supply chain, right? Mm-hmm. The planet and resources. Mm. If we think about the money that has been made from selling fossil fuels and other raw materials around the world, most of this is coming from underdeveloped countries, um, you know, where they believe the earth should have never left the ground because those places were part of those people's cultures. Right. So there, you can get into some real controversial debates about where value lies and where, where do we draw the line on net benefit, right? Supply and demand versus net benefit and the impact that it takes us to get there.
0: Mm -hmm.
1: Right. So, so, you know, we always pro you'll see well we, but I mean like, people protest against the mines directly but the reality is unless they curb the demand for cell phones and cars and vehicles and wind and solar and you know batteries and computers and like until you remove that demand those mining companies aren't going anywhere right and so and so then you have to look at you know ultimately it will be up to to the populations to move their governments or the governments to regulate what they will allow their impacts to be and if you look at the history of the world and who has been affected the most it's people of color within these supply chains that you know uh, are the supply chains for every industry in the world that we mm-hmm. benefit from um you know in in first world countries we're we're the ones that are benefiting from all these electronics and vehicles and everything else uh but it really those raw materials have come from somewhere else affecting populations of color
2: yeah i think the more we measure how a company is behaving and what how they're how they're treating every person every employee they have um once we start measuring that and people start paying attention to companies that aren't doing it well versus the companies that are and i i do see a shift in demand for companies that are doing it well so i guess to me just the more
1: historically we're recording things like diversity yeah so we may take some indicators from that on company supplied information and their disclosures of reporting uh but but we're not talking about um the perspective of the communities on this impact. So there's a whole external legacy piece that's not being considered. So, you know, if you think about the process of these supply chains, the companies are required to do an evaluation of their impacts. They are required to disclose based on a certain framework, whether it's a local permitting office, whether it's a local government office, whether it's a foreign jurisdiction office, whether it's an international standard. Um, And they're required to disclose, but there's no real... Counterbalance to that sentiment, so we are tracking the sentiment, you know, fifty to ninety thousand sources in real time across twelve hundred impact issues that are not counting the diverse wow. count of what a company just says they have within their employee population. It's bigger than that, and I and and to the benefit, you know, I there are both sides of the coin here as well. I have also you know, in my, my 25 years experience working with mining companies around the world, I've also seen mining companies do more for host communities than their governments ever will. So it's not all negative. It's, um, there is a net benefit, uh, approach to this and there are ways of doing it that's inclusive. And there are ways that are of doing it that, you know, have free prior informed consent, uh, that have collective bargaining, uh, with, you know, the right kind of information disclosed in the right way to different, different cultures. So in some cases, I mean, I can go down a whole side road on, on that topic. Uh, where, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's a whole nother, that's a whole nother session, I think, but.
0: No, we'll get you back for that. <laughs> yeah.
1: <laughs> yeah. I mean, I mean, there is a way to do it. Uh, is, you know, is this something that,
0: that read that like for fund data like did you guys have uh like you said for the at least especially the mutual funds i guess any fund that you have you have uh typically portfolio level holdings and you'd look at it for geography if it's an equity or or a bond and i'm not sure how maybe describe how specific you get on that but is there is 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 this something that maybe some of the uh, your clients are saying hey you know what we'd actually like to get an esg score out of you guys but then how do you do that? Is that something that, that's on your radar there as well?
2: Yeah, that's uh, very much on our radar right now. We're actually working on a product um, right now to develop uh, ESG scores at the fund level. Um, so we, nice. we do have, essentially we have full holdings on most funds in our database, um, almost mm-hmm. mutual funds and ETFs, I guess. That's where, that's another one of the big differences between obviously between the retail funds and the OM funds where, we don't really get a lot of holdings information on the OM funds. Um, right, right. But Yes. We have had a lot of demand for ESG scores on mutual funds and ETFs. And, um, we're, we're building a process right now that uh, we're hoping to have out in the fall where we can actually evaluate a fund and how they're integrating, um, ESG into their investment process. Um, and then you can, you know, identify the funds that are good at it, um, compare with other funds that think they're good at it. And, you know, that's another part mm-hmm. of the investment decision, right?
1: Yeah, I, I think, you know, from from our perspective, we're, we're now being asked to go a step further beyond the data and and look into some of the quantitative analytics around funds. So we have to determine mm-hmm. one fund qualifies ESG Versus how another fund qualifies ESG and where they're getting their information from, how they're weighting it, how they're valuing it, um, there there are only you know there's probably dozens of traditional ESG data providers, but how they're collecting information, how they're weighting it, how they're qualifying it, uh, validating it is all different from one supplier to another, and I don't think the broader market fully understands one ESG product from another. And so it really ultimately becomes a layering process uh, of multiple suppliers. And you know we've been through this evaluation over a decade to determine that across all of the suppliers, they're missing this section or this vertical of deep dive information. So we're looking to be an add-on to the market. Um, and we're also really enhancing it with incredible uh, data AI and technology so that we're really just the next generation of ESG, where it goes deep into the social factors and starts to value products and funds and investments a different way.
0: How about your side, Reed? Like you guys have a ton of info, and I guess you slice and dice it quite a few different ways. Or like I say, you deliver a lot of raw data too. But what do what do your clients do with do with the data uh, for their uh, I guess their their output analytics?
2: Really depends, I guess. Um, I'd say the most common thing to do is to package the data up into kind of an advisor platform Mm. or a a platform that an advisor would use um, in front of their clients or with their clients. Um, So it's really, they're using data to plug into their software that, you know, it's kind of a catch-all, right? Whether it be a summary of a fund or a really deep dive into the fund in terms of what they're holding, what are the fees, what are the different series structures of the fund kind of seeing all the different approaches that the, for what they're doing with advisors anyway. Wow.
0: You're actually delivering on the promise that I heard back in the nineties when I was an IA. Yeah. We're going to have this integrated system with all this stuff. And we said, Oh yeah. Okay. And then that didn't ever happen by the time when I was there, but uh, that's so much, so much information too.
2: Yeah. Yeah. And really a lot of the, a lot of clients are, Well, I shouldn't say a lot. I guess it is kind of split between clients that are looking for really all the data. They just want everything. And then they go figure it out, kind of filter through on their end. And then some that really have a few key data points in mind that they really just need to get in front of their clients.
1: I hear a lot, you know, from the client side where they're just buying every data set on the market that says ESG on it, and they're going to figure it out themselves. So it's like a buy versus build scenario. Um, and they're all buying the same supply of data. They're just regurgitating it, repackaging it different ways. So it doesn't necessarily solve a problem.
0: It sounds kind of expensive too if you have all these different lines of data coming Because when I was doing hedge fund research, it was you had all these subscriptions and there was like Eureka hedge and hedge rule back then and all these ones. And you're like, holy crap, now I gotta have somebody integrate and Bloomberg had their stuff and you could do all these different filters, but it was just like, okay, I don't know, like we got to figure out how to streamline this thing. It just gets to be a lot of data um, and all these different types of forms too. But I guess it's a lot easier now than it was back in the early, the early knots there.
1: Yeah. It's getting expensive. I mean, it, it ultimately will cost you millions of dollars to build and millions of dollars to maintain. And then if at the end of that, you still have gaping holes, if the same three suppliers are using the same sources of information. You've just regurgitated the same holes that we've had, that we've been using for a decade that aren't solving problems right now. I, I really think that it's just the next generation of what's coming. The obvious next step for the ESG environment is to go deep dive and get into uh, quality analytics and and material audit trails that are substantiated.
2: I have another question for Bonnie Lin, Actually, yeah, if you she- can. <laughs> um, Really, just wondering uh, how you feel about short positions. Since we're talking, I mean, this is kind of a an alternative fund platform, um, and I've heard a lot of different opinions on this. But how do you feel about short positions um, when you're doing an ESG evaluation on a fund, or even just an S evaluation on a fund? Yeah. Um, like, do you think benefiting from the decline of a stock is can be considered unethical, or what?
1: There are hedge funds who've approached us, who, you know, they live to short the market. And so any any extra edge of information that isn't otherwise available to them through standard data sets, uh, they love it. They don't care that it's social. They don't care that it's impactful. It's just that it's, it, it's an extra signal that they don't have. It's an extra piece of information or perspective.
0: Well, it, it is kind of impactful, isn't it? Because yeah. if they can short the stock and have the price go down and that thing's not doing, if that company's not doing the right thing, then they are actually kind of affecting they are affecting that company, aren't they? Yeah,
1: I mean, there's systemic issues that come with that as well. So if you, if you short right. a company into oblivion, and there's thousands of people reliant on it, I mean, there's there's an issue there too. I mean, we we sell. Yeah.
0: I, I've never seen a short seller kill a company. It usually goes the other way around. But okay. Yeah.
1: I don't know. <laughs> like I, yeah. I mean, they certainly create can create some headaches. Uh, but if it's for cause, I mean, I mean, why aren't we? Why are? Why is the company not disclosing? This material information anyway i mean everything that we're disclosing is open source and material uh so if if the onerous is on the company to be transparent with these disclosures um then really you know really the onerous is on them as to why the the their shareholders and stakeholders do not aren't aware of this information
2: that's great
0: wow um I think we're about a time too. Shoot, we should. Uh, we we'll have to get you guys on another podcast because I love. Uh, I, I love this intersection of data and investing, investment funds, uh, public companies, and how. Uh, I guess how we can use data to, to show another facet that you typically wouldn't see, especially with the uh, like you say the idea of having, say foreign language or alternative facts, other other data that can that uh, that can really have an effect on the what the company's doing and how it how it performs. Uh, so thanks, thanks, Bunny Lynn, thanks, Reed, for uh, for your time today. We hope to get you guys another podcast again sometime, uh, sometime soon.
2: Yeah, do it again for sure. Thanks a lot for Thank having me. Thank you
1: very much, both of you. It was great.
2: Thanks.